Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, mother? What's the secret? Whatever happened to Corporal Cuckoo? By Gerald Kirsch. Several thousand officers and privates of the US Army who fought in Europe in World War II can bear witness to certain basic facts in this otherwise incredible story. But let me refresh my witnesses' memories. The Cunard White Star liner Queen Mary sailed from Greenock at the mouth of the River Clyde on July the 6th, 1945, bound for New York, packed tight with passengers. No one who made that voyage can have forgotten it. There were 14,000 men aboard, a few ladies and one dog. The dog was a gentle, intelligent German shepherd saved from a slow and painful death by a young American officer in Holland. I was told that this brave animal, exhausted and weak with hunger, had tried to jump over a high barbed wire fence and had got caught in the barbs on the top strand where it hung for days, unable to go forward or backward. The young officer helped it down, and so the dog fell in love with the man, and the man fell in love with the dog. Pets are not allowed on troop ships. Still, the young officer managed to get his dog on board. Rumour has it that his entire company swore that they would not return to the United States without the dog, so that the authorities were persuaded to stretch a point just for once. This is what Kipling meant when he referred to the power of the dog. Everyone who sailed on the Queen Mary from Greenock on July 6th, 1954, remembers that dog. It came aboard in a deplorable state, arching its bedraggled back to ease its poor injured stomach, and when you stroked it, you felt its skeleton under the sickly staring coat. After about three days of affectionate care, half a hundred strong hungry men begged or stole bits of meat for its sake, the dog began to recover. By July the 11th, when the Queen Mary docked in New York, the dog was taking a dog's interest in a soft rubber ball with which several officers were playing on the sun deck. I bring all this back into memory to prove that I was there, as a war correspondent, on my way to the Pacific. Since I was wearing battle dress and a beard, I also must have been conspicuous that voyage, and the secret school of illicit crapshooters must remember me with nostalgic affection. I arrived in New York with exactly 15 cents and had to borrow five dollars from an amiable Congregationalist minister named John Smith, who will also testify to the fact that I was on board. If further evidence were needed, a lady nurse, Lieutenant Grace de Michel of Vermont, took my photograph as we came into port. But in the excitement of that tremendous moment when thousands of men were struggling and jostling, laughing and crying and snapping cameras at the New York skyline, which is the most beautiful in the world, I lost Corporal Cuckoo. I have made exhaustive inquiries as to his whereabouts, but that extraordinary man had disappeared like a puff of smoke. Surely there must be scores of men who retain some memory of Cuckoo, whom they must have seen hundreds and hundreds of times on the Queen Mary between July the 6th and July 11th. 1945. He was a light-haired man of medium height, but he must have weighed at least 190 pounds, for he was ponderously built and had enormously heavy bones. I beg my fellow passengers to remember, if they can, 
He had watery eyes of greenish grey and limped a little on his right leg. His teeth were powerful, large, square and slightly protruding, but generally he kept them covered with his thick, curiously wrinkled lips. People in general are unobservant, I know, but no one who saw Corporal Cuckoo could fail to remember his scars. There was a frightful indentation in his skull between his left eyebrow and his right ear. When I first noticed him, I remembered an axe murder at which I shuddered many years ago when I was a crime reporter. He must have an extraordinary constitution if he lives to walk around with a scar like that, I thought. His chin and throat were puckered scar tissue, such as marks the place where flesh has been badly burned and well healed. Half of his right ear was missing, and close by there was another scar, from cheekbone to mastoid. The back of his right hand appeared to have been hacked with a knife. I counted at least four formidable cuts, all old and white and deep. He conveyed this impression, that a long time ago, a number of people had got together to butcher him with hatchets, sabres and knives, and that in spite of their most determined efforts, he had survived. For all his scars were old. Yet, the man was young. Not more than thirty-five, as I guessed. He filled me with a burning curiosity. One of you must remember him. He went about, surly and unsociable, smoking cigarettes which he never took out of his mouth. He smoked them down and spat the ends out only when the fire touched his lips. That, I thought, must be why his eyes are so watery. He moped about, thinking, or brooding. He was particularly addicted to loitering on the stairs and lurking in dark corners. I made tentative inquiries about him around the decks, but just then everybody was passionately interested in an officer who looked like Spencer Tracy. But in the end, I found out for myself. Liquor also was prohibited on troop ships. Having been warned of this, I took the precaution of smuggling some bottles of whisky aboard. On the first day out, I offered a drink to a captain of infantry. Before I knew where I was, I had made seventeen new friends who overwhelmed me with affability and asked me for my autograph, so that on the second day, having thrown the last of the empty bottles out of the porthole, I was glad to sponge a drink off Mr. Charles Bennett, the Hollywood playwright. He too, if his modesty permits, will bear witness that I'm telling the truth. He gave me a ginger ale bottle full of good scotch, which I concealed in the blouse of my battle dress, not daring to let any of my friends know that I had it. Late in the evening of the third day, I withdrew to a quiet spot where there was a strong enough diffusion of yellow light for me to read by. I intended to struggle again through some of the poems of François Villon and to refresh myself at intervals with a spot of Mr. Bennett's scotch. It was hard to find an unoccupied place beyond locked doors on the Queen Mary at that time, but I found one. I was trying to read Villon's Ballade of Good Counsel, which that great poet wrote in medieval underworld slang, which is all but incomprehensible even to erudite Frenchmen who have studied the argot of the period. I repeated the first two lines aloud, hoping to talk some new meaning into them. Car ou soyez porteur de bulles, piper ou hasardeur de des. Then, a languid voice said, Hello there, what do you know about it? I looked up and saw the sombre, scarred face of the mysterious corporal half in and half out of the shadows. There was nothing to do but offer him a drink, for I had the bottle in my hand and he was looking at it. He thanked me curtly, 
half emptied the little bottle in one gulp and returned to me. Piper or hasardeur de days, he said, sighing. That's old stuff. Do you like it, sir? I said, uh, very much indeed. What a great man Villon must have been. Who else could have used such debased language to such effect? Who else could have taken the thieves' patter, which is always ugly, and turned it into beautiful poetry? You understand it, eh? he asked with a half-laugh. I can't say that I do, I said, but it certainly makes poetry. Yes, I know. Piper or hasardeur de days. You might as well try to make poetry out of something like this. I don't care if you run some come-to-Jesus racket or shoot craps. I... Who are you? What's the idea? It's a hell of a long time since they allowed you to wear a beard in the army. War correspondent, I said. My name's Kirsch. You might as well finish this. He emptied the little bottle and said, Thanks, Mr. Kirsch. My name is Cuckoo. He threw himself down beside me, striking the deck like a sack of wet sand. Yep, I think I will sit down, he said. Then he took my little book in his frightfully scarred right hand, flapped it against his knee, and then he gave it back to me. As I do the days, he said in an outlandish accent. You read Villon, I see. No, I don't. I'm not much of a reader. But you speak French. Where did you learn it, I asked. In France. On your way home now? I guess so. You're not sorry, I dare say. No, I guess not. You were in France? Holland. In the army long? Quite a while. Do you like it? Sure, it's all right, I guess. Where are you from? Uh, London, I said. He said, I've been there. And uh, where do you come from? I asked. What, me? Oh, from New York, I guess. And uh, how did you like London? I asked. It's improved. Improved? I was afraid you'd seen it at a disadvantage, what with the bombing and all that, I said. Oh, London's all right, I guess. You should have been there before the war, Corporal Cuckoo. I was there before the war. You must have been very young then, I said. Corporal Cuckoo replied, Not so damn young. I said, I'm a war correspondent and a newspaper man, and so I have the right to ask impertinent questions. I might, uh, you know, write a piece about you for my paper. Um, what sort of name is Cuckoo? I never heard it before. For the sake of appearances, I had taken out a notebook and a pencil. The corporal said, My name isn't really Cuckoo. It's a French name originally, Le Cocu. You know what that means, don't you? Somewhat embarrassed, I replied, um, Well, if I remember rightly, a man who is Cocu is a man whose uh, wife has been unfaithful to him. That's right. Uh, have you any family? No. But you've been married, I asked. Plenty. What do you intend to do when you get back to the States, Corporal Cuckoo? He said, grow flowers and keep bees and chickens. All alone? That's right, said Corporal Cuckoo. Flowers, bees and chickens. What kind of flowers, I asked. Roses, he said, without hesitation. Then he added, maybe a little later, I'll go on south. What on earth for, I asked. Turpentine. Corporal Cuckoo, I thought, must be insane. Thinking of this, it occurred to me that his brain might have been deranged by the wound that had left that awful scar on his head. I said, they uh, seem to have cut you up a bit, Corporal Cuckoo. 
Yes, sir, a little bit. Here and there, he said, chuckling. Yep, I've taken plenty of my time. So I should think, Corporal. The first time I saw you, I was under the impression that you'd got caught up in some machinery or something of the sort. What do you mean, machinery? Oh, uh, no offence, Corporal, but those wounds on your head and face and neck haven't the appearance of wounds such as you might get from any weapon of modern warfare. Who said they were? said Corporal Cuckoo roughly. Then he filled his lungs with air and blew out a great breath which ended in an exclamation. Foo wow! What was that stuff you gave me to drink? A good scotch, why? It's good, all right. I did not drink it. I've laid off the hard stuff for God knows how many years. It goes to my head. I did not touch it. Nobody asked you to empty a 12-ounce ginger ale bottle full of scotch into drinks, I said resentfully. I'm sorry, mister. When we get to New York, I'll buy you a whole bottle if you like, said Corporal Cuckoo, squinting as if his eyes hurt, and running his fingers along the awful crevasse of that scar in his head. I said, that was a nasty one you got, up there. What, this? he said, carelessly striking the scar with the flat of a hard hand. This? Nasty one? I'll say it was a nasty one. Why, some of my brains came out. And look here. He unbuttoned his shirt and pulled up his undershirt with his left hand, while he opened and lit a battered zippo with his right. Take a look at that. I cried out in astonishment. I had never seen a living body so incredibly mauled and mutilated. In the vacillating light of the flame I saw black shadows bobbing and weaving in the sort of blasted wilderness of crags, chasms, canyons and pits. His torso was like a place laid waste by the wrath of God, burst asunder from below, scorched from above, Shattered by thunderbolts, crushed by landslides, ravaged by hurricanes. Most of his ribs on the left-hand side must have been smashed into fragments no bigger than the last joint of a finger by some tremendously heavy object. The bones, miraculously, had knit together again, so that there was a circle of hard, bony knobs rimming a deep indentation. In that light... It reminded me of one of the dead volcanoes on the moon. Just under the sternum there was a dark hole, nearly three inches long, about half an inch wide and hideously deep. I have seen such scars in the big muscles of a man's thigh, but never in the region of the breastbone. Good God, man! You must have been torn in two and put together again, I said. Corporal Cuckoo merely laughed and held his lighter, so that I could see his body from stomach to hips. Between the strong muscles just under the liver, there was an old scar, into which, old and healed though it was, you might have laid three fingers. Cutting across this, another scar, more than half as deep, but more than twelve inches long, curved away downward towards the groin on the left. Another appalling scar came up from somewhere below the buckle of his belt, and ended in a deep triangular hole in the region of the diaphragm. And there were other scars, but the lighter went out, and Corporal Cuckoo buttoned up his shirt. Is that something? he asked. Is that something? I cried. Why, good God, I'm no medical man, but I can see that the least of those wounds you've got down there ought to be enough to kill any man. How do you manage to be alive, Cuckoo? How is it possible? You think you've seen something? 
Listen, you've seen nothing till you see my back. But never mind about that now. Tell me, I said, how in the devil did you come by all that? They're old scars. You couldn't have got them in this war. He slid down the knot of his tie, unbuttoned his collar, pulled his shirt aside and said dispassionately, No, look, this is all I got this time. He pointed nonchalantly to his throat. I counted five bullet scars in a cluster, spaced like the fingertips of a half-opened hand at the base of the throat. Light machine gun, he said. But this is impossible, I said, while he readjusted his tie. That little packet there must have cut one or two of the big arteries and smashed your spine to smithereens. Sure it did, said Corporal Cuckoo. And, and how old did you say you were? I asked. Corporal Cuckoo replied, Round about mm, 438. 38? I said 438. The man is mad, I thought. Born in uh, 1907? I asked. 1507, said Corporal Cuckoo, fingering the dent in his skull. Then he went on, half dreamily. How am I to describe his manner? It was repulsively compounded of thick stupidity, low cunning, anxiety, suspicion, and sordid calculation. It made me remember a certain peasant who tried to sell me an American wristwatch near Saint-Jacques in 1944. But Corporal Cuckoo talked American, at first leering at me in the dim light and feeling his shirt as if to assure himself that all his scars were safely buttoned away. He said slowly, Look, I'll give you the outline. It's no use you trying to sell the outline, see? You're a newspaper man. Though you might know what the whole story would be worth, there is no use you trying to sell what I'm giving you now, because you haven't got a hope in hell. But I've got to get back to work, see? I want some dough. I said for roses, chickens, bees, and turpentine. He hesitated and then said, Well, yes, and rubbed his head again. Does it bother you? I asked. Not if I don't touch that stuff you gave me, he replied, dreamily resentful. Where did you get that scar? I asked. The Battle of Turin, he said. I don't remember any Battle of Turin, Corporal Cuckoo. I got this in the Pass of Suze. You were wounded in the Pass of Suze at the Battle of Turin, is that right? When was that? I asked. In 1536 or 1537. King Francois sent us up against the Marquess de Guast. The enemy was holding the pass, but we broke through. That was my first smell of gunpowder. You were there, of course, Corporal Cuckoo. Sure I was there, but I wasn't a corporal then, and my name was not Cuckoo. They called me Le Cocu. My real name was Le Coq. I came from Ifto. I used to work for a man who made linen and Nicholas the... Two or three minutes passed while the corporal told me what he thought of Nicholas... Then, having come down curse by curse out of a red cloud of passion, he continued. To cut it short, Denise ran off, and all the kids in the town were singing, Le coq, le coq, le coq, le coq, le coq, le coq, I got the hell out of it and joined the army. I'm not giving you anything you can make anything of, see? This is the layout, see? Okay, I was about 30 then, and in pretty good shape. Well, so when King Francois sent us to Turin, Monsieur de Montréal was Colonel General of Infantry, my commander. Captain Leroy led us up a hill to a position, and we sure had a hot five minutes. It was anybody's battle until the rest cut through, and then we advanced, and I got this. Corporal touched his head. 
I asked. How? From a halberdier. You know what a halberd is, don't you? It's a sort of heavy axe on the end of a ten-foot pole. You can split a man down to the waist with a halberd if you know how to handle it. See? If it had landed straight, well, I guess I wouldn't be here right now. But I saw it come and see, and I ducked, and just as I ducked, my foot slipped in some blood, and I fell sideways. But all the same, that halberdier got me right here, just where the scar is, see? Then everything went sort of black and white and black, and I passed out. But I wasn't dead, see? I woke up, and there was the army doctor with a cheap steel breastplate on. No helmet, soaked with blood up to the elbows. Our blood, you can bet your life. You know what medical officers are. I said soothingly, oh, yes, I know. And this, you say, was in 1537. Maybe 1536. I don't remember exactly. As I was saying, I woke up and I saw the doctor and he was talking to some other doctor that I couldn't see. And all round, men were shouting their heads off, asking their friends to cut their throats and put them out of their misery, asking for priests. I thought I was in hell. My head was split wide open, and I could feel a sort of draft playing through my brains, and everything was going bump, bump, bumpity, bump, 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 bump. And although I couldn't move or speak, I could see and hear what was going on. The doctor looked at me and said, Kopokuku paused. He said, and asked gently. Well, said Corporal Cuckoo with scorn, you don't even know the meaning of what you're reading in your little book. Piper or Asadeur de Days and all that, even when it's put down in cold print. I'll put it so that you'll understand. The doctor said something like this. Come here and look, sir. Come and see. This fellow's brains are bursting out of his head. If I had applied theriac, he would be buried and forgotten by now. Instead, having no theriac for want of something better, I applied my digestive. And see what has happened. His eyes have opened. Observe also that the bones are creeping together, and over this beating brain a sort of skin is forming. My treatment must be right, because God is healing him. Then the one I couldn't see said something like, Don't be a fool, Ambroise. You're wasting your time and your medicine on a corpse. Well, a doctor looked down at me and touched my eyes with the ends of his fingers like this, and I blinked. But the one I couldn't see said, must you waste time and medicine on the dead? After I blinked my eyes, I couldn't open them again. I couldn't see, but I could still hear. And when I heard that, I was as scared as hell they were going to bury me alive. And I couldn't move. But the doctor I'd seen said, After five days, this poor soldier's flesh is still sweet. And weary as I am, I have my wits about me. And I swear to you that I saw his eyes open. And he called out, Jeanne! Bring the digestive. By your leave, sir, I will keep this man until he comes back to life or begins to stink. And into this wound, I am going to pour some more of my digestive. Then I felt something running into my head. It hurt like hell. It was like ice water dripped into your brains. I thought, this is it. And then I went numb all over. And then I went dead again until I woke up later in another place. The young doctor was there, without his armor this time, but he had a sort of soft hat on. This time I could move and talk, and I asked for something to drink. When he heard me talk, the doctor opened his mouth to let out a shout, but stopped himself and gave me some wine out of a cup. 
but his hands were shaking so that I got more wine into my beard than in my mouth. I used to wear a beard in those days, and just like you, only a bigger one, all over my face. I heard somebody come running from the other end of the room. I saw a boy, maybe 15 or 16 years old. This kid opened his mouth and started to say something, but the doctor got him by the throat and said, put it like this, for your life, Jan, be quiet. The kid said, Master, you have brought him back from the dead. Then the doctor said, Silence for your life, or do you want to smell burning faggots? Then I went to sleep again, and when I woke up, I was in a little room with all the windows shut and a big fire burning so that it was hotter than hell. The doctor was there, and his name was Ambroise Parr. Maybe you've read about Ambroise Parr. Do you mean the Ambroise Parr became an army surgeon under Anne de Montmorency in the army of Francis I? Corporal Cuckoo said, that's what I was saying, wasn't it? Francois Premier, Francois I. De Montmorency was our lieutenant general when we got mixed up with Charles V. The whole thing started between France and Italy, and that's how I came to get my head cracked when we went down the hill near Turin. I told you, didn't I? Corporal Cuckoo, I said, you have told me that you are 438 years old. You were born in 1507 and left Yvetot to join the army after your wife made a fool of you with a linen merchant named Nicholas. Your name was Lecoq, and the children called you Lecocu. You fought at the Battle of Turin and were wounded in the Pass of Suze about 1537. Your head was cut open with a halberd or poleaxe, and some of your brains came out. A surgeon named Ambrose Parr poured into the wound in your head what you call a digestive. So you came back to life more than 400 years ago. Is this right? You've got it, said Corporal Cuckoo, nodding. I knew you'd get it. I was stupefied by the preposterousness of it all and could only say with what must have been a silly giggle, Well, my venerable friend, by all accounts, after 430-odd years of life, you ought to be tremendously wise, as full of wisdom, learning and experience as the British Museum Library. Why? Well, I said, it's an old story. A philosopher, let us say, or a scientist, doesn't really begin to learn anything until his life is almost ended. What wouldn't he give for five hundred extra years of life? For five hundred years of life, he'd sell his soul. Because given that much time, knowledge being power, he could be master of the whole world. Corporal Cuckoo said, Baloney! What you say might go for philosophers and all that. They just go on doing what they were interested in, and they might well learn how to turn iron into gold or something. But what about a baseball player, for instance, or a boxer? What would they do with 500 years? What they were fit to do? Swing baths or throw leather? What would you do? Why, of course you're right, Corporal Cuckoo, I said. I'd just go on and on banging a typewriter and chucking my money down the drain, so that in 500 years from now I'd be no wiser and no richer than I am at this moment. No, wait a minute, he said, tapping my arm with a finger that felt like a rod of iron and glaring at me shrewdly. You'd go on writing books and things. You're paid on a percentage basis, so in 500 years you'd have more than you could spend. But how about me? All I'm fit for is to be in the army. I don't give a damn for philosophy and all that stuff. It don't mean a thing to me. I'm no wiser now than I was when I was 30. I never did go in for reading and all that stuff, and I never will. 
My ambition is to get me a place like Jack Dempsey's on Broadway. I thought you said you wanted to grow roses and chickens and bees and turpentine trees and whatnot, I said. Yeah, that's right. How do you reconcile the two? I mean, how does a restaurant on Broadway fit in with the bees and roses, etc.? Well, it's like this, said Corporal Cuckoo. I told you about how Dr. Pear healed up my head when it was split open so that my brains were coming out. Well, after I could walk about a bit, he let me stay in his house, and I can tell you, he fed me on the fat of the land, though he didn't live any too damn well himself. Yep, he looked after me like a son. A hell of a lot better than my old man ever looked after me. Chickens, eggs, and wine, anything I wanted. If I said, I guess I'd like a pie made with Skylarks for dinner, I had it. If I said, Doc, this wine is kind of sour, up came a bottle of Alicante or something. Inside two or three weeks, I was fitter and stronger than I'd ever been before. So then I got kind of restless and said I wanted to go. Well, Dr. Pear said he wanted me to stay. I said to him, I'm an active man, Doc, and I've got my living to get. And before I got this little crack on the head, I heard that there was money to be made in one army or another right now. Well, then, Dr. Pear offered me a couple of gold pieces to stay in his house for another month. I took the money, but I knew then that he was up to something, and I went out of my way to find out. I mean, he was an army surgeon, and I was nothing but a lousy infantryman. There was a catch in it somewhere, see. So I acted dumb, but I kept my eyes open, and I made friends with Jehan, the kid that helped around the doctor's office. This Jehan was a big-eyed, skinny kid with one leg a bit shorter than the other, and he thought I was a hell of a fellow when I cracked a walnut between two fingers and lifted up the big table that must have weighed about 500 pounds on my back. This Jehan... He told me he'd always wanted to be a powerful guy like me, but he'd been sick since before he was born, and might not have lived at all if Dr. Pear hadn't saved his life. Well, so I went to work on Jehan, and I found out what the doctor's game was. You know, doctors, eh? Couple Cuckoo nudged me, and I said, Mm-hmm, go on. Well, it seems that up to the time when we'd got through the Pass of Suze, they treated what they called poison wounds with boiling oil of elder with a dash of what they call theriac. Theriac was nothing much more than honey and herbs. Well, so it seems that by the time we went up the hill, Dr. Pear had run out of the oil of elder and theriac, and so, for one of something better, he mixed up what he called a digestive. My commander, Captain Lerat, the one that got the bullet that smashed up his ankle, was the first one to be dosed with a digestive. His ankle got better, said Corporal Cuckoo, snapping his fingers. Like that. I was the third or fourth soldier to get a dose of Dr. Pear's digestive. The doc was looking over the battlefield because he wanted a dead body to cut up on the side. You know what doctors are. This kid, Jehan, told me he wanted a brain to play around with. Well, there was I, see, with my brain showing. All the doctor had to do was reach down and help himself. Well, to cut it short, he saw that I was breathing, 
and wondered how the hell a man could be breathing after he got what I had. So he poured some of his digestive into the hole in my head, tied it up, and watched for developments. I told you what happened then. I came back to life. More than that, the bones in my head grew together. Dr. Ambois' pair believed he'd got something, so he was keeping me sort of under observation and making notes. I know, doctors. Well, anyway, I want to work on Jehan, I said. Be a good fella, Jehan. Tell a pal what is this digestive, or whatever your master calls it. Jehan said, Why, sir, my master makes no secret of it. It is nothing but a mixture of egg yolks, oil of roses, and turpentine. I don't mind telling you that, Bob, because it's already been printed. I said to Corporal Cuckoo, I don't know how the devil you came by these curious facts, but I happen to know that they're true. They are available in several histories of medicine. Ambroise Père's digestive, with which he treated the wounded after the Battle of Turin, was, as you say, nothing but a mixture of oil of roses, egg yolks and turpentine. And it is also a fact, and it is also a fact, that the first wounded man upon whom he tried it really was Captain Lerat, in 1537. Pear said at the time, I dressed his wounds and God healed him. Well? Yep, said Corporal Cuckoo with a sneer. Sure, turpentine, oil of roses, egg. That's right. You know the proportions? No, I don't, I said. You know, don't you, Bob? I know you don't, Bob. Well, I do, see? And I'll tell you something else. It's not just oil of roses, eggs, and turpentine. There was one other thing Dr. Pear slipped in in my case for an experiment, see? And I know what it is. I said, well, go on. Well, I could see that this Dr. Ambroise Pear was going to make something out of me, see? So I kept my eyes open, and I waited, and I worked on Jehan until I found out just where the doctor kept his notebook. I mean, in those days, you could get sixty or $70,000 for a bit of bone they called a unicorn's horn. Hell, I mean, if I had something that could just about bring a man back from the dead, draw his bones together and put him on his feet in a week or two, even if his brains were coming out, hell, everybody was having a war then, and I could have been rich in a few minutes. I said, no doubt about that. What the hell, said Corporal Cuckoo. What the hell right did he have to use me for a guinea pig? Where would he have been if it hadn't been for me? And where do you think I'd have been after? Out on my neck with two or three gold pieces while the doctor grabbed the credit and made millions out of it. I wanted to open a place in Paris, girls and everything, see? Could I do that on two or three gold pieces, I ask you? Okay, one night... When Dr. Pear and Jehan were out, I took his notebook, slipped out of a window, and got the hell out of it. As soon as I thought I was safe, I went into a saloon and drank some wine and got into a conversation with a girl. It seems somebody else was interested in this girl, and there was a fight. The other guy cut me in the face with a knife. I had a knife, too. You know how it is. All of a sudden... I felt something puffing my knife out of my hand, and I saw that I'd pushed it between this man's ribs. 
He was one of those mean little guys, about 120 pounds with a screwed-up face. She was a great big girl with yellow hair. I could see that I'd killed him, so I ran for my life, and I left my knife where it was, stuck tight between his ribs. I hid out, expecting trouble, but they never found me. Most of that night I lay under a hedge. I was pretty sick. I mean, he cut me from just under the eye to the back of my head and cut me deep. He cut the top of my right ear off clean. It wasn't only that it hurt like hell, but I knew I could be identified by that cut. I'd left half an ear behind me. It was me for the gallows, see? So I kept as quiet as I could in a ditch and went to sleep for a few hours before dawn. And then when I woke up, that cut didn't hurt at all, not even my ear. And I can tell you that a cut ear sure does hurt. I went and washed my face in a pond. And when the water got still enough so I could see myself, I saw that cut and this ear had healed right up so that the marks looked five years old. All that in half a night. So I went on my way. About two days later, a farmer's dog bit me in the leg, took a piece out. Well, a bite like that ought to take weeks to heal up, but mine didn't. It was all healed over by the next day, and there was hardly a scar. That stuff pair poured on my head had made me so that any wound I might get anywhere, anytime, would just heal right up, like magic. I knew I had something when I grabbed those papers of pears, but this was terrific. You had them still, Corporal Cuckoo. What do you think? Sure I had them. Wrapped up in a bit of linen and tied round my waist. Four pieces of it. Not paper, the other stuff. Parchment. That's it, parchment. Folded across and sewn up along the fold. The outside bit was blank, like a cover. But the six pieces inside were all written over. The hell of it was, I couldn't read. I'd never been learned, see? Well, I had the best part of my two gold pieces left and I pushed on to Paris. I asked, didn't Ambroise pass say anything? Corporal Cuckoo sneered again. What the hell could he say? He asked, say what? Say he'd resurrected the dead with his digestive? That would have finished him for sure. Where was his evidence? And you can bet your life that kid Jehan kept his mouth shut. He wouldn't want a doctor to know he'd squealed, see. No, nobody said a word. I got into Paris okay. What did you do there? I asked. My idea was to find somebody I could trust to read these papers for me, see. If you want to know how I got my living, well, I did the best I could. Never mind what. Well, one night in a place where I was, I came across a student mooching drinks, an educated man with no place to sleep. I showed him the doctor's papers and asked him what they meant. They made him think a bit, but he got the hang of them. The doctor had written down just how he'd mixed that digestive of his, and that only filled up one page. Four of the other pages were full of figures, and the only other writing was on the last page. It was all about me and how he'd cured me. I said with the yolk of eggs, oil of roses and turpentine. Corporal Cuckoo nodded and said, yep, them three and something else. 
I said, I bet you anything you like, I know what the fourth ingredient is in this digestive. Well, you bet, asked Corporal Cuckoo. I said, I'll bet you a beehive. What do you mean? Why, Corporal, it stands to reason. You said you wanted to raise chickens, roses and bees. You said you wanted to go south for turpentine. You accounted for egg yolks, oil of roses and turpentine in Dr. Pear's formula. What would a man like you want with bees? Obviously, the fourth ingredient is honey. Yep, said Corporal Cuckoo, you're right. But the doctor slipped in some honey. He opened a jackknife, looked at me narrowly, then snapped the blade back again and pocketed the knife, saying, You don't know the proportions. You don't know how to mix this stuff. You don't know how hot it ought to be or how slow you've got to let it cool. So you have the secret of life, I said. You're four hundred years old and wounds can't kill you. It only takes a certain mixture of egg yolks, oil of roses, turpentine and honey. Is that right? That's right, said Corporal Cuckoo. Well, didn't you think of buying the ingredients and mixing them yourself? Well, yes, I did. The doctor had said in his notes how the digestive he'd given to me and Captain Leroy had been kept in a bottle in the dark for two years. So I made a wine bottle full of the stuff and kept it covered up away from the light for two years, wherever I went. Then me and some friends of mine got into a bit of trouble. And one of my friends, a guy called Pierre Solitude, got a pistol bullet in the chest. I tried to stuff on him, but he died. At the same time, I got a sword cut in the side. Believe me or not, that healed up in nine hours, inside and out, of its own accord. You can make what you like of that. It all came out of something to do with robbing a church. I got out of France and lived as best I could for about a year until I found myself in Salzburg. That was about four years after the Battle of the Pass of Sousa. Well, in Salzburg, I came across some guy who told me that the greatest doctor in the world was in town. I remember this doctor's name because, well, who wouldn't? It was Ariolus Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim. He'd been a big shot in Basel a few years before. He was otherwise known as Paracelsus. He wasn't doing much then. He hung around most of the time drinking himself crazy in a wine cellar called the Three Doves. I met him there one night. It must have been in 1541. and said my piece when nobody else was listening. Corporal Cuckoo laughed harshly. I said Paracelsus was a very great man. He was one of the great doctors of the world. Oh, hell. He was only a fat old drunk. Certainly was higher than a kite when I saw him yelling his head off, banging on the table with an empty can. When I told him about this stuff in strict confidence, he got madder than ever, called me everything he could think of, and believe me, he could think of plenty, and bent the can over my head, broke the skin just where the hair starts. I was going to take a poke at him, but then he calmed down a bit and said in Swiss German, I think it was, experiment, experiment, a demonstration, a demonstration. If you come back tomorrow and show me that cut perfectly healed, charlatan, i listen to you. Then he burst out laughing, and I thought to myself, I'll give you something to laugh at, bub. So I took a walk, and that little cut healed up and was gone inside an hour. Then I went back to show him. 
I'd sort of taken a liking to the old soak, see. Well, when I get back to this tavern, there's Dr. von Hohenheim, or Paracelsus, if you like, lying on his back, dying of a dagger stab. He'd gotten into a fight with a woodcarver, and this woodcarver was soused as he was, see. And so he let this Paracelsus have it. I never did have no luck, and I never will. We might have got along together, me and him. I only talked to him for half an hour, but so help me. You knew who was the boss when he was there, all right. Oh, well, that was that. And then I asked, I'm just giving you the outline, see. If you want the whole story, it's going to cost you plenty, said Corporal Cuckoo. I bummed around Salzburg for a year, got whipped out of town for being a beggar, got the hell out of it to Switzerland, and signed on with a bunch of paid soldiers, what they called condottieri, under a Swiss colonel, and did a bit of fighting in Italy. There was supposed to be good pickings there, but somebody stole my little bit of loot, and we never even got half our pay in the end. Then I went to France... I met a sea captain by the name of Bordelais who was carrying brandy to England that was short of a man. A fast little English pirate boat stopped us in the channel and grabbed the cargo, cut Bordelais' throat and slung the crew overboard. All except me. The limey Captain Hawker liked the look of me. I joined the crew, but I never was much of a sailor. That hooker, hell, she wasn't bigger than one of the lifeboats on this ship, was called the Harry, after the King of England, Henry VIII the one they made the movie about. Still, we did all right. We specialized in French brandy, stopped the froggy boats in mid-channel, grabbed the cargo, shoved the captain and the crew overboard. Dead men tell no tales, old Hawker always said. Well, I jumped the ship somewhere near Romney with money in my pocket. I didn't like the sea, see? I had a half a dozen nasty wounds, but they couldn't kill me. I was worried about what had happened if I went overboard. You could shoot me through the head and not kill me, though it had hurt like hell for a few days while the wound healed itself. But I just hated to think of what would happen if somebody tried to drown me. Get it? I'd have to wait underwater till the fishes ate me or till I just sort of naturally rotted away, alive all the time. And that's not nice. Well, as I was saying... I quit at Romney and got to London. There was an oldish widow with a linen draper's business near London Bridge. She had a bit of dough, and she took a fancy to me. Well, what the hell? I got married to her. Lived with her about thirteen years. She was a holy terror at first, but I corrected her. Her name was Rose, and she died just about when Queen Elizabeth got to be the Queen of England. That was around uh, 1558, I guess. She was scared of me. Rose, I mean, not Queen Elizabeth, because I was always playing around with honey and eggs and turpentine and oil of roses. She got older and older, and I stayed exactly the same as I was when I married her, and she didn't like that one bit. She thought I was a witch, said I had the philosopher's stone and knew the secret of perpetual youth. Ha, so help me, but she wasn't so damn far wrong. She wanted me to let her in on it. But as I was saying, I kept working on those notes of Dr. Pears, and I mixed honey, turpentine, oil of roses, and the yolks of eggs, just as he'd done in the right proportions at the proper temperature, and kept the mixture bottled in the dark for the right length of time. 
And still, it didn't work. I asked Corporal Cuckoo, how did you find out that your mixture didn't work? Well, I tried it on Rose. She kept on at me till I did. Every now and again, we had a kind of a lover's quarrel, and I tried the digestive on her afterward. But she took as long to heal as an ordinary person would have taken. The interesting thing was that I not only couldn't be killed by a wound, I couldn't get any older, I couldn't catch any diseases, I couldn't die. And you can figure this out for yourself. If some stuff that cured any sort of wound was worth a fortune, what would it be worth to me if I had something that would make people stay young and healthy forever, eh? He paused. I said, interesting speculation. You might have given some of the stuff, for example, to Shakespeare. He got better and better as he went on. I wonder what he would have arrived at by now. I don't know, though. If Shakespeare had swallowed an elixir of life and perpetual youth when he was very young, he would have remained as he was, young and undeveloped. Maybe he might still be holding horses outside theatres, or whistling for taxis, a stage-struck country boy of undeveloped genius. If, on the other hand, he'd taken the stuff when he wrote, say, The Tempest, there he'd be still, burnt up, worn out, world-weary, tired to death, and unable to die. On the other hand, of course, some debauched rake of the Elizabethan period could go on being a debauched rake at high pressure for centuries and centuries. But oh my God, how bored he would get after a hundred years or so, and how he'd long for death. That would be dangerous stuff, that stuff of yours, Corporal Cuckoo. Shakespeare, he said. Shakespeare, William Shakespeare. I met him. I met a buddy of his when I was fighting in the Netherlands. And he introduced us when we got back to London. William Shakespeare, puffy-faced man, bald on top, used to wave his hands about when he talked. He took an interest in me. We talked a whole lot together. What did he say? I asked. Corporal Cuckoo replied, Oh, hell, how can I remember every goddamn word? He just asked questions the same as you do. We just talked. And how did he strike you? I asked. Corporal Cuckoo considered, and then said slowly, The kind of man who counts his change and leaves a nickel tip. One of these days I'm going to read his books, but I've never had much time for reading. I said, So, I take it that your only interest in Pears Digestive has been a financial interest. You merely wanted to make money out of it. Is that so? Why, sure, said Corporal Cuckoo. I've had my shot of the stuff. I'm all right. Corporal Cuckoo, has it occurred to you that what you're after is next door to impossible? How's that? Well, I said, your pears digestive is made of egg yolk, oil of roses, turpentine and honey. Isn't that so? Well, yes. So what? What's impossible about that? I said, you know how a chicken's diet alters the taste of an egg, don't you? Well, what a chicken eats changes not only the taste but the colour of an egg. Any chicken farmer can tell you that. Isn't that so? Well, well, what a chicken eats goes into the egg, doesn't it? Just as the fodder that you feed a cow comes out in the milk. Have you stopped to consider how many different sorts of chickens there have been in the world since the Battle of Turin in 1537, and the varieties of chicken feed they might have pecked up in order to lay their eggs? Have you thought that the egg yolk is only one of four ingredients mixed in Ambrose Pears Digestive. Is it possible that it has not occurred to you that this one ingredient involves permutations 
and combinations of several millions of other ingredients. Corporal Cuckoo was silent. I went on. Then take roses. If no two eggs are exactly alike, what about roses? You come from wine-growing country, you say. Then you must know that the mere thickness of a wall can separate two entirely different kinds of wine, that a noble vintage may be crushed out of grapes grown less than two feet away from a vine that's good for nothing. The same applies to tobacco. Have you stopped to think of your roses? Roses are pollinated by bees. Bees go from flower to flower, making them fertile. Your oil of roses, therefore, embodies an infinity of possible ingredients, does it not? Corporal Cuckoo was still silent. I continued with a kind of malicious enthusiasm. You must reflect on these things, Corporal. Take turpentine. It comes out of trees. Even in the 16th century there were many known varieties of turpentine, shianterabinthine and what not. But above all, my dear fellow, consider honey. There are more kinds of honey in the world than have ever been categorised. Every honeycomb yields a slightly different honey. You must know that bees living in heather gather and store one kind of honey, while bees living in an apple orchard give us something quite different. It's all honey, of course, but its flavour and quality are variable beyond calculation. Honey varies from hive to hive, Corporal Cuckoo. I say nothing of wild bees' honey. Well he said glumly. Well, all this is relatively simple, Corporal, in relation to what comes next. I don't know how many beehives there are in the world. Assume that in every hive there are, let us be moderate, one thousand bees. There are more than that, of course, but I'm trying to simplify. You must realise that every one of these bees may, in its travels, take honey from fifty different flowers. The honey, accumulated by all the bees in the hive, is mixed together. Any single cell in any honeycomb out of any hive contains scores of subtly different elements. I say nothing of the time element. Honey six months old is very different from honey out of the same hive left for ten years. From day to day, honey changes. Now, taking all possible combinations of eggs, roses, turpentine and honey, where are you? Answer me that, couple cuckoo. Corporal Cuckoo struggled with this for a few seconds, and then said, I don't get it. You think I'm nuts, don't you? I never said so, I said uneasily. No, you never said so. Well, listen, don't give me all that double talk. I'm doing you a favour. Look. He took out and opened his jackknife, and scrutinised his left hand, looking for an unscarred area of skin. No, I shouted, and gripped his knife hand. It might have been trying to hold back the piston rod of a great locomotive. My grip and my weight were nothing to Corporal Cuckoo. Look, he said calmly, and cut through the soft flesh between the thumb and forefinger of his left hand until the knife blade stopped on the bone, and then the thumb fell back until it touched the forearm. See that? I saw it through a mist. The great ship seemed suddenly to roll and plunge, are you crazy? I said, as soon as I could. No, said Corporal Cuckoo. I'm showing you I'm not, see? He held his mutilated hand close to my face. Take it away, I said. Sure, said Corporal Cuckoo. Watch this. He pushed the almost severed thumb back into place and held it down with his right hand. 
It's okay, he said. There's no need to look sick. I'm showing you, see. Don't go. Sit down. I'm not kidding. I can give you a hell of a story, a fact story. I can show you Pear's little notebook and everything. You saw what I showed you when I pulled up my shirt. You saw what I've got right here on the left side. I said, yes. Well, that's where I got hit by a nine-pound cannonball when I was on the Mary Ambray fighting against the Spanish Armada. It smashed my chest so that the ribs went through my heart, and I was walking about in two weeks. And this other one on the right under the ribs, tomorrow I'll show you what it looks like from the back. I got that one at the Battle of Fontenoy, and there's a hell of a good story there. A French cannonball came down and hit a broken sword that a dead officer had dropped, and it sent that sword flying right through me, lungs and liver and all. So help me, it came out through my right shoulder blade. The other one, lower down, was a bit of a bombshell at the Battle of Waterloo. I was opened up like a pig. It wasn't worth the surgeon's while to do anything about it, but I was on my feet in six days, while men with broken legs were dying like flies. I can prove it, I tell you. And listen, I marched to Quebec with Benedict Arnold. Sit still and listen. My right leg was smashed to a pulp all the way down from the hip to the ankle at Balaclava. and knitted together before the surgeon had a chance to get around to me. He couldn't believe his eyes. He thought he was dreaming. I can tell you a hell of a story. But it's worth dough, see? Now, this is my proposition. I'll tell it. You write it. And we'll split 50-50, and I'll start my farm. What do you say? I heard myself saying in a sickly, stupid voice, Why didn't you save some of your pay all those years? Corporal Cooker replied with scorn. Why didn't I save my pay? Because I am what I am, you mug. Hell, once upon a time, if I'd kept away from cards, I could have bought Manhattan Island for less than what I lost to a Dutchman called Brunker drawing ace-high for English guineas. Save my pay. If it wasn't one thing, it was another. I lay off liquor, okay? So if it's not liquor, it's a woman. I lay off women, okay? Then it's cards or dice. I always meant to save my pay, but I never had it in me to save my goddamn pay. Dr. Pear's stuff fixed me, and when I say it fixed me, I mean it fixed me, just like I was, and am, and always will be. See? a foot soldier, ignorant as dirt. It took me nearly a hundred years to learn to write my name and four hundred years to get to be a corporal. How do you like that? And it took willpower at that. Now, here's my proposition. Fifty-fifty on a story. Once I get proper publicity in a magazine, I'll be able to let the digestive out of my hands with an easy mind, see, because nobody dare to try any funny business with a man with nationwide publicity, eh? Uh, no, of course not, I said. Eh? Sh- sure, sure, Corporal. Good, said Corporal Cuckoo. Now, in case you think I'm kidding, take a look at this. You saw what I'd done. I-, I-, I saw, Corporal. Look, he said, thrusting his left hand under my nose. He was covered with blood. His shirt cuff was red and wet. Fascinated, I saw one thick, sluggish drop crawl out of the cloth near the buttonhole and hang, quivering, before it fell on my knee. The mark of it is in the cloth of my trousers to this day. See, said Corporal Cuckoo, and he licked the place between his fingers where his knife had cut down. A pale area appeared. Where did I cut myself? he asked. I shook my head. There was no wound, 
only a white scar. He wiped his knife on the palm of his hand. It left a red smear and let the blade fall with a sharp click. Then he wiped his left hand on his right, rubbed both hands clean upon the backs of his trouser legs and said, Am I kidding? Well, I said, somewhat breathlessly. Oh, what the hell, groaned Corporal Cuckoo, weary beyond words, exhausted, worn out by his endeavours to explain the inexplicable and make the incredible sound reasonable. Look, you think this is a trick? Have you got a knife? Uh, Yes, why? A big knife, Um, moderately big. Okay, cut my throat with it and see what happens. Stick it in me wherever you like, and I'll bet you a thousand dollars I'll be all right inside two or three hours. Go on, man and man. It's a bet. Or go borrow an axe if you like. Hit me over the head with it. Be damned if I do, I said, shuddering. And that's how it is, said Corporal Cuckoo in despair. And that's how it is every time. There they are, making fortunes out of soap and toothpaste. And here I am with something in my pocket to keep you young and healthy forever. Ah, go chase yourself. I never ought to have drunk your rotten scotch. This is the way it always is. You wear a beard just like I used to wear before I got a gunpowder burn in the chin at Zutphen when Sir Philip Sidney got his, or I wouldn't have talked to you. Oh, you dope. I could murder you, so help me I could. Go to hell. Corporal Cuckoo leaped to his feet and darted away so swiftly that before I found my feet, he disappeared. There was blood on the deck close to where I'd been sitting, a tiny pool of blood, no larger than a coffee saucer, broken at one edge by the imprint of a heel. About a yard and a half away, I saw another heel mark in blood, considerably less noticeable. Then there was a dull smear, as if one of the bloody rubber heels had spun around and impelled its owner towards the left. Cuckoo! Cuckoo! I shouted. Oh, cuckoo! Cuckoo! But I never saw Corporal Cuckoo again, and I wonder where he can be. It may be that he gave me a false name, but what I heard, I heard, and what I saw, I saw, and I have five hundred dollars here in an envelope for the man who will put me in touch with him. Honey and oil of roses, eggs and turpentine. These involve, as I said, infinite permutations and combinations. So does any comparable mixture. Still, it might be worth investigating. Why not? Fleming got penicillin out of mildew. Only God knows the glorious mysteries of the dust out of which come trees and bees and life in every form, from mildew to man. I lost Corporal Cuckoo before we landed in New York on July the 11th, 1945. Somewhere in the United States, I believe, there is a man tremendously strong in the arms and covered with terrible scars who has the dreadfully dangerous secret of perpetual youth and life. He appears to be about thirty-odd years of age and has watery, greenish eyes. Well, that was Whatever Happened to Corporal Cuckoo by Gerald Kirsch. I must thank Gavin Critchley for this story. He contacted me to do a commission way back at the beginning of the summer. And he wanted me to do this particular story as a favourite of his 
for his birthday. So I record, he paid me to do it. And he uh, got that commission done and was very kind about it and was even more generous and said that I could actually broadcast it on the podcast a bit later after his birthday. So obviously we're in November now. So that was really fantastically generous of Gavin and very typical of the supporters of this podcast. So um, thanks, Gavin. Thank you for uh, your support, your ongoing support, because you haven't just stopped there. You've kept on supporting the podcast. So thanks again. I'm going to say a little bit about Gerald Kirsch. So Gerald Kirsch was born in Teddington, which is on the Thames, just outside London. I think it's maybe Middlesex originally, but it's certainly part of Greater London now. And he was born, Kirsch was born in 1912, and he was born into a poor Jewish family. Story has it that he began writing stories at the age of eight, so he always wanted to be an author, a writer. You know, it isn't necessarily a full-time living. He had to do other jobs, and they're very colourful, and they're very mixed, the jobs he did to keep himself going. And given what is said about his character later on, one wonders how long he did them for and whether he employed a bit of a dramatic licence to make them more uh, significant in terms of time than, than they were. I mean, for example, I've been a, a drummer in a band. I've been a, a waiter. I've worked in an art gallery. But I mean, for some of these things, I only did them once or twice. Who knows? Maybe he did them a lot. So he was, he was born in a poor family in 1912, in just outside London. And these jobs he is supposed to have had were a cinema manager, a bodyguard, a cook in a fish and chip shop, a French teacher, a traveling salesman, a nightclub bouncer, and a professional wrestler. One of his books that came out, um, I think in 1943, was autobiographical, and it was about his life growing up poor and Jewish in the outskirts of London. But a family member objected to it, so it was withdrawn, and he was sued for libel by his family member. So I don't know actually what he said, but people can be touchy, can't they? Maybe it was something or nothing. Um, His most famous story, he, he wrote all his life, and his most famous story is possibly The Night and the City, which was published in 1938 and made into a film twice. The latest version was in 1992, and in that, Robert De Niro played um, the main role. He did lots of writing. He was in the army. Apparently he didn't join, uh, he didn't volunteer, but was drafted into the army in the Second World War, into the Coldstream Guards, which is a prestigious infantry regiment based originally from Coldstream, on the Scottish border, and I think it was originally um, a regiment intended to keep the Scots in order, um, which clearly didn't work. But he ended up in the uh, Army Film Unit, Kirsch did, ended up in the Army Film Unit, and apparently there are two stories. One was that he deserted, and the other is probably more likely that he was actually invalided out of the Army after a bomb blew off, not blew off, but broke both his legs. Um, he remained in in France around the end of the Second World War and was probably fairly, how can we say this, you know, some of his relatives, his Jewish relatives he learned had been um, killed by the Nazis in their concentration camps. He wrote in a lot of genres, mystery, science fiction, horror, and he went in 1958, he went to the USA. He probably went there before, but he travelled over and uh, because he didn't like paying British tax, he felt that the British tax system after the Second World War, because there was a big revolution in the social 
makeup, not social makeup, social structure, in that after the Second World War, a socialist government was elected in the in the UK, and they brought in a lot of um, socialist policies, such as a national health service, uh, pensions, um, things which for poor people you would have thought were a good thing. And although Kirsch had been poor, I'm not sure he was as poor as that, and he certainly objected to paying tax. So he moved to the US where the US tax system was more favorable in 1958. And he lived in the USA and died in New York in 1968. I've lifted this little piece because I thought it was very well written from his biography in the Villain Court Books site. They do a lot of um, ghost stories and horror stories. You're probably worth picking a few of those up. So it says on there, Kirsch was a larger-than-life figure, a big, heavy-set man with piercing black eyes and a fierce black beard, which led him to describe himself proudly as villainous-looking. His obituary recounts some of his eccentricities, such as tearing telephone books in two and capping beer bottles with his fingernails, bending dimes with his teeth, and ordering strange meals like anchovies and figs doused in brandy. Doesn't sound too bad. For breakfast? Yeah, still, I could eat that for breakfast. Kirsch lived the last several years of his life in the mountain community of Cragsmore in New York, so I'm guessing that's New York State rather than New York City, and died at the age of 57 in 1968 of cancer of the throat. That's Kirsch. So there's probably a lot more to be said about him. He sounds like a, an interesting guy. Whatever happened to Corporal Cuckoo? Question mark. Well, we know now. This is a story about immortality. And there have been many stories about immortality. Quite often, the twist on it is it's not an original twist. And I don't think this is the main purpose of this story, but the main thrust of this story, but the, um, is to turn immortality into a curse. And we think of the, one, the, the Flying Dutchman and the Wandering Jew. You know, these people are condemned to live a terrible life for forever, um, wandering the world like lost souls. So there's a bit of that here. But I think the real gem of this story is, yes, absolutely, immortality doesn't look as good as it did when we first thought of it, when we see Cuckoo. So there are a couple of things I want to say. First of all, you may know that in the Middle Ages, or the sort of Renaissance period, when this, when um, Corporal Cuckoo, Le Cuckoo, the Cuckold, uh, becomes um, immortal by accident, there was a big trade, a big interest in the elixir of life. And alchemy was a massive thing in those days. Not, it, not completely mainstream, not completely. It wasn't like witchcraft in that they burned you for being an alchemist, but they, they, you weren't looked on very favorably. So lots of people sacrificed their fortunes, their lives, their health to find the elixir of life, this tincture which would allow you to live forever. And even some royalty, such as Rudolf II in Prague, Famously, if you ever go to Prague, which I would definitely say you should go, um, up at the castle there, there's the um, Golden Alley where the, all the alchemists lived. And he brought them under his protection and in the hope that they would produce this tincture, um, the, the, you know, the alchemist's stone, which can be, which is generally understood as some kind of immortal life thing going on. It, it can also be seen as turning everything into gold, but Rudolf II didn't need gold. He had plenty of gold. He spent a lot of gold funding alchemy and alchemists, so it isn't about that. So the, the idea is that this is discovered by accident by this French surgeon called Ambroise Paré, who, um, it was real, and that, that part of the history is, is true, well-researched by Gerald Kirsch. 
So this great lump of a man is given immortal life by accident and he can't reproduce it. So the whole of eternity thereafter for Cuckoo and presumably continuing onwards because he disappears from the Queen Mary on its way to America. So we, we presume he's still, he's still at it now. He wants to recreate this uh, tincture, this elixir, uh, in order to sell it. So he wants to, and his ambitions are so pitiful and paltry. He actually wants to get enough money to open a low, what is it, a low rent clip joint somewhere with, with just real low class, looking for low class customers. And this is the height of his ambition. So all he wants from immortality is to run a club like that so he can actually presumably satisfy his own interest in uh, cheap liquor and cheap girls, eh? So <laughs> comments, please. No doubt there will be some. So he's not, he's not an ambitious man and he's given the greatest gift and squanders it. And so that surely is the message here for us all, at least one of them. So the message is, you know, we can spend our lives looking for something and when we get it, it, it isn't as great as, and of course, that's lottery winners, isn't it? People win forty-eight million pounds, and it makes them miserable. So that is the common narrative, anyway. Actually, probably for some of them, they're really, really happy. But we don't hear about those. We hear about the stories of the people it's made miserable because they cannot rise above themselves. Now, I'm not being critical of these people because I can't rise above myself either. So Corporal Cuckoo, he's only a corporal. After all these years in the army, he's only managed to be a corporal. He, he, the guy says to him, the uh, Kirsch, the um, journalist, says to him, well, do you know, if you just put a little bit of your pay away and put it into a tracker account, I mean, Warren Buffett would have told him this, all you need is something that tracks the, uh, the stock market. And you'd just be a billion, 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 billion zillionaire. And he could buy as many clubs as he wanted, but he isn't capable of doing that because that is not who he is. And I, I think that's what the story is about. It is about the, the sourness of immortality. We, we are given the gift that we always wanted, and then it turns out to be a bit hollow. But further than that, I think that for me, the real message in this story, and I'm always amazed and pleased when people comment and they find different messages and actually better ones. You know, I've come across that so many times now. I will say, this is what I think this story is about. And then somebody will comment, yeah, but what about that? And I go, oh my goodness, that is exactly it. You've, you've nailed it. And I missed it. So there we are, which actually reinforces the fact we can't rise above ourselves. I can only see what I can see. Somebody else can see something else, something else can see further than me see further than Cuckoo. Cuckoo cannot be other than he is. I'm, I'm quite interested in the idea of Dharma. So D-H-A-R-M-A. So this is an Indian term and it has slightly different meanings in Hinduism, Buddhism and Jainism. And it, and it means one's role in life, you know, one's duty, the virtuous path. But also in some of the stuff I read, it, it has, it, maybe this is kind of through Western eyes, it says you can only be what you can be. And that raises up some interesting questions about free will. I believe in free will, but clearly free will only operates within a, a certain restricted circle. So I wanted to, when I was a kid, I wanted to be, I wanted to go to Mars, in fact. 
And I thought, well, I'm going to have to join the Air Force for that because there's always Air Force pilots. So I embarked on this career and I set my heart on becoming, uh, joining the Royal Air Force. But I couldn't because I was colorblind. So I, I couldn't do it. So there's no way. Just imagine, I'm red, green, red, green, colorblind. Imagine going to Mars. I, what, I go, what, what, what you see out there, well, it's, it's all green. It's beautifully green. No. You know, I, I simply couldn't do that. I couldn't be a professional footballer. I couldn't be an accountant. I just don't have the attention to detail. I really don't. I have some freedom of movement in life. But by and large, I was born where I was born, with the body I've got, with the temperament I've got, with the mind I've got. And that actually maps out pretty much what is possible. So is free will possible? Other opinions are available. I think it is possible to be, to have free will. I think you can choose to do the right thing. We could debate this. Maybe you can't. Maybe you do the right thing because you are destined to do the right thing and you can't do any other. Maybe a criminal is a criminal because they cannot be anything other than a criminal. And that is putting no blame on them and giving them no reward either, no virtue either. So anyway, this for me is what this story is about. Corporal Cuckoo is a corporal who wants to run a strip joint because that's all he's capable of doing. And I am doing what I do because that's all I'm capable of doing. And I don't mean that in a nasty way. I mean, this is, this is where fate and gravity and time and all this have put me, sitting in my den at the top of my new house, which I really like, recording a podcast about the kind of things that I record a podcast about. I'm not doing, I'm not Joe Rogan, you know, and I'm not doing a beauty podcast. Funnily enough, I, I um, decided at one point I was going to do Botox. So Sheila was very helpful with this. And we went out and we injected lots of, um, mostly women, some men, with fillers and Botox. And it never really took off because I'm not actually that interested in beauty. But the reason I've been able to continue this podcast for going on, is it three years now? I think it might be, um, is because I'm actually interested in these things. So when I get up, I am driven to do it in a way that I couldn't say if I was doing one about football. I just couldn't do a, pro a podcast about football. That neatly segues, actually not very neatly, into commentaries about the podcast. There's a feedback process now, which is great. And people have said to me, ah, oh, well, I see that you're, 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 you're doing this, you're changing your thumbnails, and you're trying to do this. And the truth is more complicated than that. Yes, I have been watching YouTube um, videos about how to improve your YouTube. That's very incestuous, isn't it? It's a circle. The worm eats itself. Yeah, there are, there are huge YouTube channels about how to be huge on YouTube. And it just goes round and round and round. So, yeah, I will say, oh, yeah, it would be good because then I could have money and I could um, jack in my job and fine. But what I end up doing is doing the things that I'm just, div the whims that come to me. I just, oh, yeah, the Halloween ones were um, a case in point. There were three Halloween videos and all three of them were fairly dark. Ray Bradbury's was darker than mine. Uh, the Killer Clowns wasn't very dark at all, but it, had, it, uh, it was funny. Yeah, it was a humorous story. But because I picked a Killer Clown picture, people thought it was much darker than it was, and, and they avoided it because of that, I think. But, you know, the people who listen to it will tell you, actually, it was fairly comic. This, the, the Haunting of Unit 409, again, it was a fairly pretty typical Tony Walker story. And uh, some people liked it. Most people really liked it. I liked it. I thought it was okay. The My Love Affair with the Storage Unit, which you can listen to. 
And again, I picked a, a monstrous thing for the image, which probably suggested it was darker than it was, because actually, if you listen to it, it, it wasn't as horrific as, the, as all that. People had said, oh, you, I see you, you, you've selected these thumbnails. because," And that, that is probably not true. It's just a whim. And coming back to our theme, Corporal Cuckoo, Cuckoo cannot be other than he is. I cannot do a podcast stroke YouTube channel that is other than I am. And that's fine, you know. That is absolutely fine. There's not a complaint. <laughs> and the other thing is I spent a lot of time when I went on YouTube trying to, to suss out what people wanted. Did they want the classic Edwardian? I talk like this and the classic Edwardian story about, you know, Farmer Giles of Ham, which is, you know, that's Tolkien, of course. I can do some of those, but I... I, I like weird tales more, but then I'm not a, a Lovecraft-focused person. I'm not focused of anything. So, we, uh, yeah, I've been neglectful because we were away. Uh, we were away for five days over um, the Halloween period. I went down to London on the 28th to see my beloved Hawkwind. I'm wearing one of their T-shirts now. And uh, they were great in the London Palladium. They were really, really good. Given that Dave Brock's 80, blimey. And then, yeah, they were good. And then we spent a lot of time. We went up to Hampstead. I saw some friends. I went out for them down near the Young Vic uh, for a meal with them. I nearly wore Sheila's legs off walking around different places. Bought more books. Oh, no. Uh, but it was great. I had a great, oh, I had a lovely time down in the South Bank. We went on a Halloween cruise on the river. And it was, the lights were just gorgeous. There was a fairground. I'd taken some photos, but it was really like fairyland. It was, it was absolutely wonderful. And then we came back, and there's been a lot of bad weather up in, in the UK. There's been lots of rain down, so uh, when we went down, the trains were disrupted. They weren't disrupted on the way up, but they had been, so they were absolutely packed full. My daughter Imogen was staying here this week while we were away. Some people really like me telling you what I had for breakfast. I won't go that far today. So, but this is how I end up doing it, so I can't probably do anything else. I could say, right, be disciplined, Tony, and do not speak about anything personal. You know, follow a strategy to for YouTube fame and do this kind of story, which is this length, and put rain sounds in. That's an idea, though. I could tell you scary stories. I could whisper them and put rain sounds in, and you could all fall asleep. And there are channels, very successful channels, more successful than mine, that do that. Anyway, I hope you're all well. I'm well. I really am well. I'm trying not to get another job, which would be my fourth four jobs. Too many. Anyway, I hope you're all well. You all take care, and there will be more coming soon. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?